and welcome to the 51st Womanthology podcast. My name is Fiona Tatton and I'll be your host. Womanthology is a digital magazine and professional community powered by female energy and ingenuity. We champion equal recognition and reward for everyone, sharing opportunities, ideas and a deep pool of collective wisdom, supporting each other to be unstoppable. In this episode, I will be chatting with Miss Samantha Tross, consultant orthopaedic hip and knee surgeon who is the first black female orthopaedic surgeon in the UK. She will be discussing her career journey as well as the work she's doing championing diversity, equity and inclusion in surgery. Inesh Santos is away on her holidays, though I'll be talking you through the new content in the written issue while she's away. A quick reminder that you sign up for the Womanthology newsletter by filling in your details on the front page of our website, that's womanthology.co.uk. You can also join our LinkedIn community by visiting linkedin.com forward slash company forward slash womanthology and find us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. So welcome to the Womanthology podcast. We have Miss Samantha Tross and she is a consultant orthopaedic hip and knee surgeon. Samantha, great to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. Pleasure to be here. Well, we're looking forward to hearing all your stories and your journey. I'm going to dive straight in with the questions and start by asking you if you could tell us about your educational background and career to date. Who is Samantha Tross? Well, thank you very much again, as I said, for inviting me. Samantha Tross is a consultant hip and knee surgeon. I was born in Guyana in South America, and that's where I had my primary school education. Because of my father's job, he was given a job with the Commonwealth Secretariat and sent to Africa. He decided to send myself and siblings to boarding school in England because his job entailed traveling to many African countries and he didn't want my education to be disrupted. So I came to England and I did my secondary school here. And it was actually whilst I was in primary school, I'd already decided I wanted to become a surgeon. So I continued in that path during secondary school and thereafter applied to medical school. And I was successful in being given a place at University College and Middlesex School of Medicine. And that's where I did my medical training. Once I finished medical school, uh, I was still set on being a surgeon, although there were times when I considered other careers, but eventually I settled, you know, surgery is, is for me. And there I did my basic surgical training on the Royal London rotation. So that's going through the Royal London Hospital, Basildon Hospital, and Orsett Hospital. But that was a Royal London rotation. And after you've done your basic surgical training, you can then decide which surgical specialty you want to go into. And you have general surgery, which deals with the bowels, abdominal contents generally, orthopedics, which is bones and muscles. You can have neurosurgery to deal with the brain, vascular surgery, the blood vessels, and so on and so forth. And I decided that I wanted to do orthopedics. And I chose that for a number of reasons. I enjoyed the specialty. The surgeons were very welcoming. They made, you know, as a student, sometimes you can feel like a spare part, but they really actually welcomed me into the fold. And I like the fact that orthopedic patients on the whole are very well. They have an injured body part, whereas specialties such as neurosurgery, a lot of the patients are actually dying, and I found that difficult to cope with. Specialties like vascular surgery, 
You can have emergencies like an aneurysm where the major artery of the body can suddenly rupture. And that means that you have to come out and operate at all times of the night. Now, with orthopedics, if you work in a trauma center, that is also true. But for most other specialties, if you're not in a trauma center, then most surgery is done in daylight hours. And therefore, I found that very attractive. So I did my highest surgical training, having decided to do orthopedics on the Geis and St. Thomas's rotation. And that took me to a number of hospitals. In fact, I went to five different hospitals. And you would spend a year in each hospital and then rotate round. The aim of that is to go and, and get experience from as many specialists as possible and learning different techniques. We're also encouraged to subspecialize. So although I operate on the bones, you've got bones all over the body, I decided I want to become a hip and knee surgeon. You can be a shoulder surgeon, you can be a hand surgeon, you can be a foot and ankle surgeon, etc. So I decided I want to do hips and knees. And you're encouraged to spend some time just focusing on those areas. And usually we're encouraged to go overseas, again, to widen your knowledge base and experience to see how things are done. And perhaps you can adopt some of those techniques. And I spent six months in Toronto, Canada, and six months in Sydney in Australia. Uh, and then I came back to England and in 2005 was appointed a consultant at Ealing Hospital. And uh, I didn't realize it at the time, but when I was appointed, I became the first female of African Caribbean origin to become a consultant. I know that there were other African Caribbean or black, if you want to, to make it clear, women who had done orthopedics, but had not reached to the consultant level. So that was a first for me. And then I scored another first in 2018, and I became the first woman in Europe. So not just the first black woman, the first woman in Europe to perform robotic hip surgery. So those are my little claims to fame there. Wow. Robotic surgery sounds so exciting. Could you tell us a bit about it? Yes, and I think, you know, some people get very confused when they hear robotic. And in fact, it scares some people because they think there's actually a robot doing the surgery. And who knows, in the future, that may happen. I might be able to sit here in my living room and operate from here. I don't know. But what a robotic surgery does is it essentially is a way of cross-referencing your accuracy and giving patients individualized prostheses. So there's certain parameters, it's like a computer, and it takes certain data points from the patient. And from that, it can assess, let's say we're doing a knee replacement, the normal alignment of the limb and how the current knee has deviated from that and what one needs to do to bring it back into the normal range. And then it will advise you where to make your cuts and so on. Now, of course, information coming out relates to information going in. So if you don't put the right information in, it doesn't matter whether there's a robot or whatever, things can go wrong. And that's where you still have to have your skill as a surgeon to recognize when something isn't right. So that if necessary, you can override and recalibrate. Now, what it does is that it tells you where to make your cut. And then when you go to make your cut, it ensures that your cut is accurate. So it'll highlight to you when you are going or trying to deviate away from that. So it's a way of creating reproducibility and accuracy. Wow, you're the surgeon of the future. <laughs> and if we are trying to imagine you on a day-to-day -day basis, how many days would you be operating and how many days would you be doing other things? Right. So as an orthopedic surgeon, there are two aspects of the job, the clinical side of the job. And that's dealing with trauma, and then dealing with elective patients. So from the elective part of things, because I'm a hip and knee surgeon, 
I tend to treat diseases affecting those areas. And primarily, most of my work is either doing knee scopes, which is arthroscopy keyhole surgery into the knee, or doing joint replacements, hip and knee replacement surgery. And so I have a set day in the week for that surgery. There are other procedures that I do, but that's the bulk of my work. And then there's the trauma side of things. So again, you have a set trauma list and you would be assigned a day for doing that. But if you have difficult cases and you haven't got availability, you may end up operating on other days of the week. Or perhaps a case comes in when it's another colleague that's on duty, but it's not in their specialist area. So then it'll be handed over to you and it may not be possible or acceptable to wait until your next operating list. So you may end up operating in between. So two set days, but it may be more than that. Then, of course, there are clinics. We have to see patients, the elective patients who usually come via their GP or it can be via the local physiotherapists. So there's a musculoskeletal network where GPs can refer patients to and then they can refer into hospital. And so you'll be seeing those patients in clinic to evaluate them and to formulate a management plan. And you'll also be seeing patients in the clinic who have come back following their procedure to monitor their progress. So that's on the elective side. On the trauma side, similarly, patients usually come in via the accident and emergency department, and then they will be seen in A&E if they need specialist input straight away. If they need an operation, they'll be referred to the doctor on call, who will be a member of my team. Or sometimes they're seen and assessed by the A&E doctor and the decision is made that actually it could be managed non-surgically and they'll be referred into my clinic. So you'll be seeing patients in the clinic and managing their conditions. So that's the clinical side. Now, there are other aspects. There's teaching. We have to teach our junior doctors in the department and also medical students. We are affiliated with Imperial College. So I teach the Imperial College medical students. And then everyone is expected to also contribute to the development of the department. So their managerial roles, where you'll be on particular committees. I'm concurrently on a sabbatical for a year. I go back in April. And before leaving to go on a sabbatical, I was head of department. So you, you're overseeing the care and progression of all the doctors within the department. So that's what my day entails. I'm going to have to keep in touch with you because I've got really bad knees. What's your favorite part of what you do? What really makes you light up when you do it? The reward is when a patient gets a desired outcome following your intervention. I can't beat that feeling. And when I get a satisfied patient coming back to me, that's what it's all about. Also, to add to that, the opportunity to meet a lot of people. I enjoy interacting with people. So I get a chance to meet lots of people who come into my clinic. And it's so important to develop a relationship and to build trust between you and the patient. So that I enjoy. And, and the camaraderie that I get from the colleagues that I work with. But the real thing is that positive feedback from patients following your intervention. And in medicine, I suppose there's a lot of jargon and things that lay people don't necessarily understand. So, for example, when I introduced you, I introduced you as Miss because that's your title as a consultant. I suppose when you're dealing with people as well, it's the ability to explain medical things in straightforward terms that the patients are going to understand. Yes, when you're a surgeon, you're either Miss, Mrs or Mr. And that's because historically surgeons weren't medically qualified. They were the barber surgeons. They had their knives available. 
and the doctor would make the diagnosis and decide upon a treatment and then get the surgeon to do the cutting. That's why. The name has continued, although now surgeons, of course, are medically qualified and we're all doctors first. It remained as a way to distinguish us from physicians, but we all start off as doctors. In terms of communicating with patients, it, one requires the emotional intelligence because different patients require different things. Legally, if you have a patient who is going in for a procedure, you're duty-bound to ensure that the patient understands what they're going into, and it's a joint decision. I can't decide to do something on someone. They've got to be on board. And you have to give them the necessary information so they can weigh up the pros and cons. And you've got to do it in a way that patient understands and it's different for different patients. And you have to find a way. I enjoy that interaction and understanding different personalities and knowing when to say what and so on. That's a skill in itself. You've received several awards as well, which I'm sure you're very modest about. But could you talk us through a few of those? Yes, I've been very fortunate to have my work recognized. And one sets out in one's career, you do something that you're passionate about. And that's just like an extra cherry on the cake when someone wants to recognize you. I've been given a Black British Business Award for the work that I've done. It was called an Image Award because I've been inspiring and teaching young students, primarily from African Caribbean backgrounds, because there is a real paucity of Black doctors within the medical field. At the moment, in terms of consultant surgeons, Blacks make up only 2% of the consultant body. And Black female surgeons, it's one point something percent. So there's a lot to be done there. So encourage students and let them realize that this is a potential career path and to educate them in how to navigate what is required. So I do a lot of work there. I was given an Outstanding Guyanese of the Year award. That was in the year when I did the robotic surgery. I mentioned as the first female in Europe and won by Zenith Global Healthcare and Black Women in Care as well have been given an award. I've also been lucky enough to be featured in a number of books as well. So one was part of the curriculum for schools where different careers were being profiled. And why is diversity of thought so essential in medicine as well, following on from that? Well, diversity of thought is essential in all aspects of life. Without it, we're not going to create novel solutions. In medicine, if we keep going at, at problems in the same way, we're not going to get progress. And so diversity is absolutely essential. And you find that when there's diversity of thought, it also means that other people in the room become more open-minded. It pulls everyone along. And we find that when we have that diversity of thought, along with that goes more empathy. You're aware that there are other people in the room that are not thinking the same as you. And so you're forced to think differently. And ultimately, that leads to better patient care. You're giving better patient care because of your attitude, but also of the solutions that you're coming up with. You're many things as well as being a role model, but why are role models so important? Role models are important because it motivates and empowers you to believe that it is possible for you. So I mentioned there are very few Black medical students and doctors. So when you see a Black person in that position, you realize that it's something that's not outside of your reach. So I think that's the key about role models. So your role model doesn't have to look like you. I didn't have role models looking like me, but I had role models. 
So color is just one aspect of being a role model. I didn't even have female role models because when I first qualified in medical school, female surgeons made up only 3% of the consultant body. So my role models were men and they were white men. But your role model is someone who motivates and encourages you to believe that you can achieve. That's the key. And are you noticing that medicine's becoming more inclusive? And how do we keep pushing that forward? It's definitely not moving as fast as I would like, but we are definitely moving. It's very much the topic of focus at the moment, diversity, equity and inclusion. And the way that we increase the diversity is first and foremost with education. So we need to educate people to recognize their biases. That, that's key because we all have biases. So what tends to happen is you unconsciously will tend to select people who look like you or act like you, etc. So that education is first and foremost. And once we're educated, we'll change our selection. And I think part of changing that criteria is to have a more diverse pool of people doing the selection. But you're only going to get people into the pool if you first let them in. So it's like a chicken and egg. So yes, we have to educate. And then those that do get through, we have to nurture and support them. There's a fallout because the system is such that it's not set up to let people who are of a diverse background than the majority succeed. So we have to make sure that we really support and nurture those who we've got through. Mentorship is important and sponsors. So you make sure that you mentor and then there's someone who really takes an interest and really tries to push and propel uh, the person forward. And I think as well, there needs to be some form of affirmative action. Nobody likes quotas and so on. And I'm not, I'm not uh, supporting putting someone of inferior quality. Nobody wants someone as a token, but to be open-minded and have a broader field of selection to make sure that you get these particular candidates, if you are serious, to source them out and make sure that they get into the rules. And for our part, whatever we are able to do to, to put the messages out there, to connect people, we're really, really pleased to do that. We're here to help and do our bit as best we can. So thank you very much. <laughs> keep, we'll keep pushing. <laughs> and, and in terms of advice to those who are interested in careers in medicine, and it's difficult because it's obviously it's a mm. complex route and it's a complex journey, but what would you advise people to do? Well, I think that, first of all, be clear on why it is you want to choose a career in medicine. I mean, a lot of people come into it because it's parental pressure or what, you know, make sure it's something that you really want to do. And to understand if it's something you want to do, you want to do the research, understand what it involves. There's lots of data out there. If it is, you want to go into surgery, the Royal College of Surgeon website, you can check the medical school websites to, to find out what's involved. But I think that if it is something that you are passionate about, and I, and I believe it should be something you're passionate about, one should not be chasing a career in medicine for financial gains, etc. It's a caring profession. And first and foremost, the passion must be there. And when the passion is there, it doesn't feel like work because it is hard work. There's a lot of hours of training that's required. And you'll find, like I did when I was in medical school, my friends who were just doing degrees that were three-year degrees, they would be out and they seem to have more time in medicine you're working through because you have placements and so on. If it's something you're passionate about, then this doesn't seem so onerous. But it's long periods of study, lots of work required. 
But ultimately, it's a great profession. There's a clear structure to it that's very rewarding, and I have no regrets. I think it's a fantastic profession, but make sure it is indeed your passion. Wise words indeed. So we've come to the final question. So what is coming up next for you? What are you looking forward to? What are you excited about? One of my biggest passions is to increase the diversity within the surgical profession. I've mentioned there's a paucity of doctors of African-Caribbean origin, and I have a role within the International Orthopaedic Diversity Alliance. I am the secretary for that organization. We've got over a thousand members where we try to increase diversity in orthopedics. And diversity, I'm not just talking color, I'm talking gender. We just don't have enough women, much less those of ethnic minority backgrounds. So doing a lot of work there, working with the British Association of Black Surgeons, of which I'm a founder member and trustee, and the British Hip Society Cultural and Diversity Committee. And I'm also working with the Royal College of Surgeons and one of their committees as well to try and increase diversity across surgery. So very active in those areas. And hopefully in the future, we'll see much more of a balance. And I am looking forward to getting back to my NHS job, having recharged my batteries over the last year. I'm a lifetime learner and I'm always looking at areas to develop and grow as a person. And I'm actually going to be doing a self-motivation course, which I'm enjoying. I'm setting up a business to try and assist with the medical healthcare in my home country, Guyana, in terms of virtual consultation. So looking forward to getting that off the ground. And I'm currently involved in training the surgeons back home in Guyana and to continue that work, to make sure that the healthcare is the best it can be because my parents are there and I want to make sure that they are well looked after. (laughs) Well, the profession is very lucky to have you and you're doing an amazing job. So I just want to say thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and your wisdom with us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. It's been amazing. Miss Samantha Tross, consultant orthopaedic hip and knee surgeon. As Inesh Santos, our associate editor, is off on her holidays at the moment, I'm bringing you the new stories in the written issue on her behalf. Stories include Nina Jameson, senior associate at the Financial Conduct Authority, shares her career journey and how she's woven in her passion for championing those from underrepresented backgrounds into her role, even going as far as qualifying as a life coach in order to go the extra mile to support others in achieving their full potential in the workplace and beyond. Luba Kosova, co-founder and director of international audience strategy consultancy ACAS, discusses the work she's been doing with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation around missing perspectives of women in news. She's recently completed the third report in the series, From Outrage to Opportunity. In it, she explores the quadruple bind faced by women of colour in news and journalism as well as offering practical, evidence-based recommendations about how news organisations might fix their lack of inclusion. Chief Superintendent Harvey Katkar, Vice President of the Police Superintendents Association, discusses her work supporting underrepresented colleagues, as well as sharing her feelings around the perception and implications of being the first. As the first female superintendent, the first tactical firearms commander, and the first public order bronze commander in the West Midlands police from a black, Asian or minority ethnic background. And finally, Bushra Schutemarker, 
PhD candidate, zoologist, radio presenter and nature writer explains why we must all learn to recognise the incredible value of diversity in science and why environmental justice is social justice. Do check out our website, womanthology.co.uk, to read the full stories. Sadly, that's all we have time for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, if you want to support what we do, then share the link for the show on social media and also follow the show. Your feedback is really important, so please do rate and review the show in your podcast app. Join us in the next episode and written issue where we celebrate International Day of Women and Girls in Science. 